Hey, what's up? My name is Stephen, and I lead Avenue Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, along with my wife and an incredible team. We really have a desire to see people experience God's unconditional love, find their true identity in Christ, and live out their purpose. And we would love to connect with you. You can find us on all social media platforms simply by searching Our Avenue Church. You can also check us out online by going to OurAvenueChurch.com. We really pray that something in this message inspires and equips you to experience the way of life you were created to live in Christ. Enjoy. We're in week three of Storyline. We are taking a look at Jesus in the Old Testament. So many times we break the Bible up into the Old and the New Testament. And if you're not familiar with it, or you, you kind of see it as two separate pieces, two separate stories, but it's really all one story from Genesis to Revelations. And, and everything that we read in Scripture, if we listen, um, it, it whispers the name of Christ. And so last week we talked about Isaac and how Isaac was um, the first bl- or the, the, the blessed son of Abraham who had been praying for a son for 25 years. And finally, when he was 100 years old, um, God blessed him with a son. I'm 43 years old and I don't want a newborn at 43, right? I couldn't imagine having one at 100. We call those grandkids. My wife is like, nope. <laughs> speaking, speaking of my wife, guys, today is a special day. Today is her birthday. So on the count of three, I'm going to be dead after this. You guys will actually have somebody else next week. On the count of three, let's shout happy birthday. One, two, three. Happy birthday. Yeah, we could not do this. She keeps me sane and keeps me organized, and all my 18 members are like A to the men, right? But we're, we're, we talked last week about Isaac, who was born to Abraham 25 years and then God asked him to do something ridiculous is to give him back and offer him as a sacrifice. And the final statement that we talked about is that, that Isaac was the son of the promise, but then we see his life um, echoing Jesus's life in that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Amen. And so we're going to continue in Abraham's lineage. And so Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, and Jacob was the secondborn. And Esau, since being the firstborn, there is um, an inheritance and, and a right that comes, a birthright that comes to the firstborn. And Esau sold it for a bowl of beans, and then Jacob stole it. And, and Jacob grows up with his father's birthright and runs away. Um, and as he's running away in his journeys, he wrestles with God. He meets God one night face to face, wrestles with the angel of the Lord, which we talked in the first week that when we see the angel of the Lord pop up in the Old Testament, we know that that is very possibly could be Jesus. And so he's wrestling with Jesus and Jesus, the, the Lord pops his hip out of socket. Says He says, I will not let go of you, Lord, until you bless me. And so God pops his hip out of socket, and then changes his name to Israel. How many times we've asked God for a blessing, and it's a little more painful than what we thought it was going to be, right? Planning a church, God, give me that blessing. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, thank you, Lord. I appreciate it. But so we see God change Jacob's name to Israel, 
And so that's where we get the name of God's people, Israel. For those of you who may not be familiar, it's like, all right, so I know about the children of Israel. They are the children of Israel because they are Israel's descendants, right? And so we pick up here in Genesis chapter 37. Um, This is the story of one of um, Israel, one of Jacob's sons. Genesis chapter 37, verses one through four. And this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bila and Zilpha. But Joseph reported to his father some bad things his brothers were doing. Guess what he was? He was a tattletale. Nobody likes a tattletale, but he was reporting the bad things that his brothers were doing. But because of that, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. And that's where we get the story of the Technicolor dream coat and the coat of many colors. But verse four says, but his brothers, what? Hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. And so you see Joseph as his father's favorite. And there's actually a story predating this when Jacob was was going to meet his brother Esau face to face for the first time. And he's afraid of his brother because he stole his brother's birthright in one sense. And so this is the first time they're coming together. And so Jacob's like, all right, I got to get my ducks in the row. I got to make sure that I keep everybody safe. And so Jacob takes first the servants and their children and puts them at the front of the line. And then, so Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and that's a crazy story if you want to talk about a mix-up, all right? So he wanted to marry Rachel, worked for seven years to marry Rachel. Instead, his father-in-law gave him Leah on the wedding night and said, you can have Rachel if you work another seven years. Just crazy story. So he's married to Leah and Rachel. Leah has some kids. And so then he puts Leah and her kids after the servants. And then guess what he does with Rachel and Joseph? puts them at the end so that they're safe. So Esau, if Esau is going to attack, he's going to have to get through the servants and their kids, then get through Leah and her kids so that Joseph and Leah. So if you're Leah's kids and you're, see your brother at the back of the line, you know essentially what they're thinking? Dad would rather me die than Joseph die. I mean, imagine the family dynamic of that. And those of you who have kids, there's some times where you really want to bring your children to the edge of death so that they would understand. I'm just kidding. Not really, but I am not kidding. (laughs) Right? All my kids are great. Um, And so they're at the back of the line. And so you can understand why his brothers hated Joseph. And it says that they hated him all the more. And so then Joseph makes matters worse. He has a couple of dreams and he goes and he tells his brothers these dreams. The first dream is is about they're all out in the field and they're baling hay and baling wheat. And it says, Joseph said that, that my bundle of grain stood up. And then all of your bundles of grain stood up and they came and they bowed before my bundle of grain. Brothers were not hearing that. They were like, what, are you saying we're gonna bow to you? We will never bow to you. And then the scripture says that they hated him even more. It's like, Joseph, you're not making matters any worse. You know that guy. 
right? Some of you probably work with that guy. You don't like him and he's always trying to one-up you and then he comes with this great idea and you're like, there's no idea, like no way that's gonna work. And so then, then he has another dream. He has another dream that, and I don't know how it works, like it says that the moon and the sun and 11 stars bow before him. And so is he floating in outer space? Like dreams can get pretty lucid and crazy sometimes, right? And so he tells his brothers this and they're jealous even more. And his dad, Joseph, or Jacob says, are you saying that your mother and I are gonna bow to you? Like that's not gonna happen. And it says that his brothers were jealous even more, but it says that his dad, his father kept these things in mind. And so life goes on. Joseph is holding on to these dreams and his brothers are shepherds. And so since he's the favorite, he's at home not having to do a whole lot. And so his, his dad sends him out, sends Joseph out to check on his brothers because they're out supposed to be watching the sheep. And he goes to the one place they're supposed to go. And guess what? The brothers are not there. And so he's trying to find the brothers and, and, and they send him, he, he meets a guy and sends him to the directions where his brothers are. And then we see here in, in verses 18 through 20 of Genesis 37. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. They make this statement. Here comes the dreamer. Come on. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. And we can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of this dreamer. Now, that's some pretty serious stuff. Like we, like we have some sisterly arguments in our house. And you've probably, you know, fought with your siblings from time to time. But I've never plotted to kill my sister ever. There's some times I wanted to tie her up when we were teenagers or lock her in her room, right? But I never plotted to, to kill her. And so these brothers are plotting. And then one of the brothers is like, why would we want his blood on our hands? Let's just throw him in the pit. And then we won't have to kill him. He'll die of starvation. But that brother had a plan to come back and rescue him. So, so they throw Joseph in the pit. And what's crazy is they grab him and they throw him in the pit. And then they're sitting around eating lunch. It was like brothers in the pit and they're eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich outside the pit. And so you gotta think like he's probably begging for his life. He's probably asking to be taken out. He's probably asking, why are you doing this? And they're sitting around eating their lunch and then they see some travelers, some traders coming by. And like, why? Like, look, we can make some money here, <laughs> right? So they pull him out of the pit and they sell him into slavery and don't have to worry about him. So they took the coat that his father had made him and they, they shredded it and ripped it and they covered it in blood to convince their father that his favorite son was, say it together, was dead. And the father believed and he wept. And so for the next 13 years, Joseph is actually on the journey of his dream being brought to fruition. He's on the journey for the next 13 years of that dream being fulfilled, but he doesn't know it. And he's gonna have some ups and he's gonna have some downs. He's gonna be imprisoned. He's gonna be betrayed. He's gonna have all these things happen before that dream is fulfilled. And so the traders took him to Egypt where he was purchased again by a gentleman named Potiphar who was a captain in the Pharaoh's house. And so he became Potiphar's servant. And the scripture says that the Lord was with Joseph. 
We see this over and over again. The Lord was with Joseph and everything that Joseph put his hand to, he was successful at. And so finally got to the point where, where Potiphar's like, I don't have to do anything. Like you can just take care of everything for me. I don't have to worry about it. And it says that Potiphar prospered as a result. But Potiphar was also married. And scripture says this. Scripture says that, that Joseph was a young, well-built, handsome man. And so, not like your pastor, right? Who's been working on the dad bod for like 20 years now, right? So Joseph was this well-built, handsome man, and Potiphar's wife caught her eye. And so it says that day after day, she propositioned him. Day after day, she propositioned him. That he withheld from temptation day after day. And so finally, she forced herself on him, and he said, how could I sin against God? Not how could I do this, not try to, you know, make something happen or give in and then ask. He said, how could I sin against this? And so, so he ran away and it says that she grabbed his robe and she yelled rape. She yelled that he tried to force himself on her. And so as a result, Joseph lost his position, the highest in command in Potiphar's house, and he was put in prison. It's on the way to fulfilling that dream, right? <laughs> Put in prison, and yet he became a successful man. And then again, we see this. We see this line in the story. It's a long story. But we see this line again where it says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. He's imprisoned, and it says that the Lord is with Joseph while he's in prison. And everything that Joseph puts his hands to, guess what he is? Successful. And he's so successful that the warden of the prison notices it and says, all right, Joseph, I know like I have the title, but you've got the responsibility. You're gonna take care of everything for me. And Joseph makes a couple of friends, a, a, a baker and a cupbearer, and they have a couple of dreams. And um, he is able to interpret the dreams for them. And one has a good outcome, the other one a not so good outcome. But he told the cupbearer and the baker, he says, listen, since I've done you this favor, when you get out, please speak well of me to Pharaoh so that I can get out. Guess what his friends do? They forgot all about your boy. They left him in prison for another two years. And so Joseph, again, is on the way to fulfilling his dream, and now he's not just been in prison, but he's been forgotten about until Pharaoh has a dream, and he's sharing this with the cupbearer, and the cupbearer is like, hey, I met a guy once. You guys ever done that? It's like, yeah, I might know a guy. And so they called Joseph out of prison, and, and Joseph was, in, was, was able to interpret the dream for Pharaoh, and it was, it was crazy dreams. He must have had pizza before bed or too much Rocky Road ice cream. And so he had this dream of, of these seven fat cows coming up out of a river, and they were grazing, and then there were these seven shriveled skinny cows that came up out of the river, and it says that they ate those fat cows. But those skinny cows, when they ate the fat cows, did not get fat. They stayed skinny. Then he had another dream that there were seven plump um, uh, heads of grain. And it says that there were seven shriveled, skinny heads of grain that came and devoured the seven plump heads of grain. And so the Pharaoh tells Joseph these dreams. And Joseph interprets them and says, look, Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of success. You're going to have seven years of abundance. And then at the end of that seven years, you're going to have a seven-year famine. And so Pharaoh, what you need to do is you need to put someone in charge that can take care of things during that seven years of plenty. 
You need to store all the grain so that when the seven-year famine comes, everyone will have enough to eat. And so this is what we see happen. Um, in Genesis 41, verse 43 through 44, it says, so Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh. No one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. And so what's happened again is Joseph has been brought to a place of prominence from a low place to a high place. He was his father's favorite son in the pit. He was sold to Potiphar's house, was the most important man in Potiphar's house in the prison. And now he has risen to a place of authority, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And the Pharaoh says, no one will lift a hand unless you ask them to do so. And so when we, when, when we look at, at, at the comparison and the contrasting between Joseph and Jesus, there are some things that are very, very obvious. Obviously, the first thing is like Joseph and Jesus were both, we said this last week about Isaac, but were beloved sons of their father. As a matter of fact, we see when Jesus is baptized and, and he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit ascends like a dove on Jesus and his father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We know that Jesus was also despised and betrayed by his brothers and by his kinsmen. The religious, the religious leaders despised him. His brothers were jealous, and then he was eventually abandoned by his disciples. Just like Joseph, Jesus was, was betrayed and sold for a, a few pieces of silver. Um, just like Jesus, or just like Joseph, Jesus was also tempted and he did not sin. And really, like as I was studying, when you look at a lot of the characters in the Old Testament, G Joseph is one of the very few who are almost perfect without any blemish. Now, he might have been a little snotty-nosed teenager trying to like, like get one over on his brothers as being the favorite, but he withstood probably one of the greatest temptations, men, that we face when it comes to physical lust. He withstood that and ran away from it. And so we see him as without fault. Um, he was wrongly accused. Jesus was accused of, of heresy and rebellion. Joseph was accused of, of um, sexual abuse. And then at the end, they were both given all authority. Joseph was given all authority over all of Egypt. Jesus has ascended to the throne where heaven is his footstool and he has all authority of heaven and earth. And it is an incredible story, a rags to riches story. And most of the time when we preach this, um, and I've preached it, it's about enduring trials. It's about God working all of our situations for good. You guys have probably heard sermon titles. It's about moving from the pit to the palace where God works everything out for us. It's about getting back what we've lost. Back in the day, we sang a song in church, God, I went to the enemy's camp and I, what? Took back what he stole from me, right? And so he's under my feet, he's under my feet. Satan is under my feet. And so we can sing that and we preach that, that Joseph in one sense went to the enemy's camp and he took back what his brothers had stole from him and even regained more. And we see God do that in our lives, that, that, that when something is taken away from us, part of the sonship and the daughtership of walking in relationship with our God is that he returns those things. 
that we've lost. And not only does he return those things, but he works, and, and I say this a lot, he works all things out for the good of those that love him. A statement we say time and time again is that nothing is wasted that you go through. No, no, no valley, no mountaintop, nothing is wasted that you go through. God uses it all in the formation of making you more into the image of Christ. It may not feel good and it may not look good, but it's for your good. It says that nothing is withheld from his hand when you need it. And so we could stop there with Joseph's story. He's received it all back. He's gotten it back. He's now in charge. He's went from the pit to the palace. But guys, in all reality, it's the next chapter of this story that we really see Joseph as the foreshadowing of Christ. Because the famine hits for seven years, people are going without food and his brothers are hungry. And Jacob, Israel, tells his brothers, go to Egypt and buy grain there. And so they they go to Egypt and they buy grain and Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And, and, and he speaks in a language that they can't understand. And I'm sure on the inside, like many of us, he's welling up with all kinds of a period of, of emotions and just trying to figure out how do I navigate this situation? But he does not let on that he is the brother that they wanted to kill. He does not let on that he is the brother that they sold into slavery. And so there's some back and forth, some trading of grain and money, and there's a whole lot of drama that goes on. But finally, he comes to the point to where he cannot keep it in anymore, that he has to let it out. In Genesis chapter 45, verses five through eight, he says this, don't be upset because once they realize, they're like, we're done for. Once the brothers realize who he is, they know that their life should be over. The, the second most powerful man in the known world. But Joseph says to them, but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourself for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine has ravaged the land for two years, will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Verse seven, God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And it is he, God, the one who has made me advisor to Pharaoh. What a perspective shift. What a change. When you're standing in front of probably the worst enemy in your life, been plotting for 13 years, and now the dreamer has become a deliverer. He had an incredible opportunity for revenge at that moment, but instead of revenge, what Joseph does is he begins the process of reconciliation is that he realizes that all authority and all power that he has, he could get revenge in the moment and it would last for a moment. But the powerful thing is to use that to begin the process of reconciliation. And so the brothers went back and forth and they went and got their father and brought the rest of the family and began their life in Egypt. And so as we continue this story, and you may have heard like, like the children of Israel, this is how the children of Israel got to Egypt through Joseph, 
Joseph brought his father and all of his brothers back to Egypt. And then over the course of centuries, they multiplied into a great nation. And we'll learn next week how they come out of that nation. And so Joseph's father and his brothers come. And then some more time passes and Israel dies. Joseph's father dies. And it says that the brothers were afraid what Joseph was going to do. And so in their minds, they're thinking, as long as dad is alive, we're safe. Because Joseph isn't going to do anything to take away his father's favor. Because he's daddy's favorite. And he's not going to do anything to mess up being daddy's favorite. And so Joseph's brothers come to him after his father's death. death, And and, and they plead with him in Genesis 50. It says, so they sent this message to Joseph. He said, listen, Joseph, before your father died, they don't say my father. They say before your father died because they're humbling, they're surrendering, they're submitting to the greatest authority in the land. He says, before he died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you. Forgive us for their sin in treating you so cruelly. Now please forgive their sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, what did he do? He wept. It says that he wept. And there's this principle when you're studying scripture. It's, it's, it's called the principle of the first. And, and the principle of the first means that, that it is a very unique thing that's happening in that moment. It's the first time it's mentioned in scripture and there's some, some parameters and there are some principles that that are built around that. And this is the first time the word forgive is mentioned in scripture. It's the first time it's mentioned in scripture. And and here's, here's what I want you to understand that is there is nothing that the brothers could do in that moment to earn forgiveness from their brother. Because they had essentially murdered him. They had essentially had killed him, right? They, they, they left him in the pit and then they sold him into slavery, not caring what was gonna happen to him. As a matter of fact, they took the, the, the garment, the robe, they ripped it and covered it in blood, which symbolized his what? Death. And so as far as they were concerned, they had killed their brother. They didn't know what happened. They weren't worrying about it. They weren't thinking about it. And now he's standing before them and they are pleading for their lives, asking for forgiveness. But in all reality, there is absolutely nothing that they can do to earn that forgiveness. And so him having all authority, having all resources, this was Joseph's reply in verse 19 and 21. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? And that's a whole sermon in and of itself. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many. Don't be afraid. And he says this, I will continue to take care of you and your children. Guess what Joseph is giving them? Forgiveness. It's not in those words where he's saying, I forgive you, but he's saying, look, don't worry about it. It's not your fault that I'm here. Even though you played a role, it's not your fault. God sent me here and I will take care of you and your children. And the next line, it's not on the screen, but it says he spoke kindly to them. And so many times we read this as a story of rags to riches and how we're going to make it through, but it's not a story of rags and riches. This is a story of reconciliation and restoration. 
This is a story of a family being reconciled by a brother that they betrayed. This is the story of restoration of God's people. Because if you think, had that restoration not had have happened, we would have a much different story. It would have looked very different, and I trust God would work it out in his timing and in his way, but had that restoration not have happened, his brothers could have starved to death, and they would not have been in Egypt. They would have not have multiplied. The, the Egyptians would not have been afraid of the Israelites over time had that restoration not have happened. And so his dream came true, probably not in the way that his 17-year-old self thought, Right? Many of us had dreams as a 16, 17-year-old. Maybe you're having them now as a 16, 17-year-old, or you're, you're 23, you're 24, and, and you've had some dreams, and you kind of see a glimmer and some highs and lows. And, and I promise you, when you get there, it's not going to have happened the way that you thought it was going to happen. See, the problem with dreams is, is, is we get a picture of what the end is going to be like, but there's a whole lot of life between the time we wake up and the time we reach that dream. And I've been reading a little bit every, every, every week from the, the, the Jesus storybook. And I'm going to sit in my chair, if that's okay, right? I'll sit in my chair. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole story of Joseph, but I'm going to read the end part because this applies to us. This is that the brothers, they came and they knelt before the new prince because at this point, Joseph was the prince of Egypt. It says his brothers didn't know the prince was Joseph, but Joseph knew who they were. Joseph's dream, the one about his others bowing down to him, was coming true in this very moment. It's me, Joseph cried, and when they saw it was Joseph, his brothers were afraid because they had wronged Joseph. They had sinned, and now they knew it. Now Joseph would certainly punish them. But Joseph looked at his brothers and his eyes filled with tears. Even though his brothers had hurt him and they hated him and they wanted him dead, no, in spite of everything, Joseph couldn't stop loving them. His heart, which they had broken, filled up with love, and Joseph forgave them. So that Joseph threw his arms around them. Don't be afraid. Behind what you were doing, underneath everything that was happening, God was doing something good. God was making everything right again. Joseph didn't punish them. Instead, he rescued them. He brought God's special family to live safely with him in Egypt. And then one day, God would send another prince, another brother, a prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and leave his father. His brothers would hate him and they would want him dead as well. He would be sold for pieces of silver he would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive our sins, the sins of the whole world. And so in some senses, guys, we are Joseph's brothers. In some senses, we have turned our back on our brother Jesus because scripture says that we, he is the first of many in Hebrews. And sometimes on purpose, sometimes we 
move ourselves out of God's house like we sing about this morning. Sometimes we just, we, we intentionally walk away because of hurt, because of doubt, because of disappointment. And other times it's, it's a slow walk away from our brother. Um, but our story doesn't end there. Because our brother, when we come before him, when we come before Jesus, he says, it's okay what you've done. That I have come here to redeem you, to reconcile you, to restore you. And so for some of you here today, that is where your story picks up. That you're at a place where you need to stand before the brother that we've denied. And you need to say, I'm sorry. And in that moment, when you say, I'm sorry, he says, don't be afraid of me. He said, I've been brought to this position so that I could save many lives. He says, don't be afraid of me. I will continue to take care of you. Guys, this is his promise. I will continue to take care of you and your children and your children's children. But even there, our story doesn't end because then the story would just be about us. And anything that God does in our life, even though we would like for it to be all about us, it's not about us. Everything that God does in your life, everything that he makes us to be, and everything that he gives us is ultimately not about us. What God gives us and who God makes us through redemption, through sanctification, through restoration, through forgiveness, through that whole process, it's not about us. Jesus is our forgiving brother so that we can forgive others. So that everything that Jesus does in your life, everything that Joseph did in the life for his brothers wasn't just about them, it was about generations to come. Jesus has forgiven us, not just so that we can hold on to it for ourselves because there are people in our life that have wounded us. There are people in our life that have hurt us. There are people in our life that, that maybe 13 years ago, they pushed you in a pit and they turned their back on you. Maybe three weeks ago, they stabbed you in the back. Maybe worse, I don't know your story. I don't know what your brothers or your sisters or your family or your friends have said and done and betrayed you. But our brother has forgiven us. And scripture says very clearly that we have a responsibility to forgive those who have wronged us. It's easy to love those that we like and love those that we love, but we're to do good to all. We're to forgive. Jesus is asked a question by one of the disciples. He says, if someone wrongs me, should I forgive them seven times? And his answer is what? No. 70 times seven. As many times as it takes. There's even, there's even one part in, in Matthew where, where Jesus is, is giving the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, even if you go to the temple, you go to the altar and you go to offer a sacrifice and you remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there. Go and be, and this word is, is reconciled. Go and be reconciled with that person and then come back. Some of us in this room, there needs to be some reconciliation first between our brother, our Christ, who's forgiving us, but then we may need to do the long, hard work of some reconciliation and restoration in those that are around us, 
our other brothers and sisters. But we've been given a, a, a really, really good model. We've been given a really, really good example. And we've been given everything that we need. And I know it's hard. And, it's, and, and as I'm saying these words, you're like, one, is like, how could God ever forgive me if he really knew? Two, is like, how would God be okay with me forgiving them if he ever knew? Guess what, guys? He already knows. And he loves regardless. Scripture says that he reigns on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. His, his, his love is not held back. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment, I want to pray first for those of you who are here today and you're like, you know what, Stephen, I am the brother who has betrayed my Savior. I am the brother who has turned my back on Jesus. Maybe it was an intentional walkout. Maybe it was a slow rollout because of disappointment and discouragement. Or maybe you're here today and you don't even have a relationship with Jesus and you're here hearing this for the first time. I want you to hear Joseph's words as Christ saying them, don't be afraid of me. No, don't be afraid of me. I will continue to take care of you and your children. And if that's you today and you need a relationship with Christ, it starts with simply saying, Jesus, I give you my life. That's not all that's gonna be said, but that's the start of a lifelong conversation and relationship. And if that's you today, I'm gonna ask you just very, with every head bowed, just to lift your hand just to lift your hand as a sign of acknowledgement that, that, that you need a restoration and a reconciliation to be taking place in your own life. Just another moment. And maybe there's some of us in this room and we find ourselves hurt and wounded by family members, by friends, and we know that we're supposed to forgive, but it's really, really hard and difficult because of how deep the wounds are, how long ago they were, whatever that is. But I want to pray that, that you would have the strength and the courage and the grace and the compassion to begin to work out that process of forgiveness and if that's you, I want to pray for you as well. Just lift your hand right up with, with every head bowed. You can put it right back down, hands in every section. All right, look up here at me, look up here at me. We're going to pray for you guys in just a moment as a church. And if you didn't raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to participate as I'm praying, that you're praying as well for those that are coming into relationship with Christ. Um, and to pray for those who are hurting, that are wounded, that we would see Joseph and Jesus as the example to follow in living out this forgiveness. And for those of you, as we pray this prayer of salvation, I'm not gonna have you repeat after me. I want it to be your words in your way. So you simply say, just, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I wanna follow you. Just start that relationship on your own terms, in his terms, but your words, because he's done all the work. You simply say yes. Can we pray together? Father, I come to you this morning. and God, I thank you for the hearts that have been lifted up and the hands that were raised that acknowledge that we need a Savior in our life, that we don't get it all right, that it doesn't work on our own, God, that we're coming back home to you or, or entering into relationship with you for the first time. And Many in this room are saying, Jesus, I give you my life. It's the simplest and most perfect prayer of surrender. 
that starts the relationship. Where there was guilt and shame, Father, I pray that there is life, that there is joy. Where there is doubt and fear, God, I pray that there is faith and trust. God, your word says that all those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that you, our Lord, are saved. And in this moment, something supernatural is happening as they are crossing from life to death. That the old is gone and all things are made new. And Father, for the rest of us in here, myself included, we, we're on this journey. And for maybe years, we've been plotting and we get to that position and we have these resources, we're going to get revenge and return the hurt that we've received. But God, I pray that we would recognize that you've given us this message of reconciliation and that everything that you make us to be and everything that you give us is not just about us, but it's to bring life to those around us. So Father, give us opportunities, give us words, give us clarity, give us courage. But God, give us the compassion of your son. So Father, just for another moment, I just ask your spirit just to do a heart work. God, that you would heal the wounds. that the scars will be part of their story of your goodness and your grace and your mercy in our lives. And it would be a lifeline to those around us and a testimony to your goodness and your power and your authority in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone says, amen. Come on, let's put our hand together for God's word.